Well, good evening. You know this scripture, but I'm going to read it to you, and you'll see why in a moment. Through the Lord's mercies we are not consumed, because His compassions fail not. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. Through the Lord's mercies, you and I are not consumed. I was picked up this afternoon uh, at John Wayne Airport by John Mendoza, and uh, I was in Colorado teaching at a conference. And as I went out to the, uh, the arrival deck out in the roadway where everybody waits for people to pick them up, I noticed that John managed to have his car parked right in the middle with the lights flashing and the Orange County Sheriff around him. And I thought, how did he manage to pull this off? This is great. I mean, this is like a, a welcome. And uh, what it was is they were towing his car away. But it's the Lord's mercies that he was having his car towed away. What had happened is he was pulling in going, I don't know, five miles an hour. He noticed the car lunge to one side. He thought it was a flat tire until the car uh, tipped on one side and the entire wheel he saw go past the front door and down the road. The wheel sheared off. It could have been on the freeway. It was while he was pulling up to park that the wheel came off of the hub and went down the road. And John tipped and watched the wheel go by. (laughs) Through the Lord's mercies, we are not consumed. All of those little things that happen that we go, what a great coincidence. It's not a coincidence. It's through the Lord's mercies that we're not consumed. So before we even begin tonight, would you just pause for a moment and ask the Lord to bring to your mind something perhaps just to meditate on to give him thanks for as we begin tonight thank him for his mercies thank him for his care I love you, Lord, and I lift my voice to worship you, O my soul, rejoice, take joy, my King, in what you hear. May it be a sweet, sweet sound in your ear. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Next week, this is the last of our vision casting sessions. This is session number four. And uh, next week, it's about a month since we've had the Lord's Supper as a fellowship. So next Wednesday night... Much like we did on Good Friday, we're going to gather together here for the Lord's Supper, for communion. So we'll announce that on Sunday at the services and post it in the bulletin and on the Internet. But just so you know and you can prepare and you can tell others, 7 p.m. next week, communion. 
Then the week after that, we thought we'd start a series uh, before we jump right in and going through the Bible. Someone suggested, who had been uh, going here for a while, why don't you do that series you did in the book you wrote, How to Study Your Bible and Enjoy It. Um, We did a book some years back by Tyndale House with that name, How to Study the Bible and Enjoy It, so that you feel comfortable anywhere in the Scripture in coming to grips with what the text means and how to apply it to your life. So we're going to begin after the Lord's Supper the week after, how to study the Bible and enjoy it. Then third, Chip and Joanne, come on up. We want to pray for Chip and his dear wife. We're so grateful for the work that God's done in her life and uh, what he's brought her through. And and Chip's been on staff part-time, I think, for the last four years. Is that about right? Mm -hmm. I got that right? And um, for the last 18 months, the Lord's put it on Chip's heart, he told me, to uh, pastor again, to be a senior pastor. So uh, he and his wife are going out uh, in the local area and have begun a Thursday night study and uh, then a Sunday morning service. Has that started yet? Mm -hmm. Great. And uh, so we just wanted to love on them and pray for them and ask God's blessing on their lives. Let's do that. Heavenly Father, we want to thank you for this couple. Lord, lay your hand upon them. You already have. You brought them through so much. And it's through your mercies, Lord, that they're here tonight. And they've given so much for many years in many different places. And now, Lord, as they take a new adventure together, bless it. Bless them. Give them vision. Fill them with your spirit. And Lord, add to their numbers. Add to their ranks. Lord, do that special work that you want in them and through them, we pray. And we bless them in your name. We're grateful for them. In Jesus' name, amen. Give them a big hand of applause. And they're going to be around afterwards uh, if you want to just talk to them and pray with them and find out what's going on with uh, the ministry the Lord's led them into. So would you open your Bibles tonight to Matthew's Gospel, chapter 9. Matthew, chapter 9, in verse 35... And Jesus went about all of the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every sickness and disease among the people. But when he saw the multitudes, he was moved with compassion for them, because they were weary and scattered like sheep having no shepherd. And then he said to his disciples, the harvest truly is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. One of my favorite Bible commentators was H.A. Ironside, Harry Ironside. And he tells an interesting story. In his travels, he was in a town and he saw a church. He drove by the church. It was a cute little building and a a great little fellowship, at least it looked like that way on the outside. 
And they had a motto hanging over the church, a temporary sign, that he thought was a wonderful sign. It read, Jesus only. And he thought, that's great. It inspired him. What a great motto for a church, Jesus only. He had been in that town a few days, and over the course of the days, he was informed about that particular church and that it really wasn't uh, all about Jesus. Uh, It was all about them. Uh, And uh, the church had sort of a reputation for being a self-oriented church. Uh, On his way out of town, it was a windy day, he writes, and uh, the first three letters of the sign blew off. And when he read it, he thought, now that's more accurate. For it read, us only. Well, that's one thing we don't want to become as a church. An us only church. It's all about us. When here Jesus tells his disciples, lift your eyes up. They're on you perhaps. They're on your surroundings. But look up a little higher. And see what the Lord sees. See the world as the Lord, your Father, sees it. He said, The harvest is truly plentiful, but the laborers are few. It was Bishop J.C. Ryle from Liverpool, England, who said, The highest form of selfishness is when a man is content to go to heaven alone. Think about that for a moment. The highest form of selfishness is when a person is content to go to heaven alone. There's a progression that happens. We've we've noticed it on the Sermon on the Mount, that when you come to God poor in spirit, broken, mourning over your condition, meek, you hunger and thirst after righteousness, eventually you become salt and light. You become an influence to those around you. Your eyes are off yourself. Suddenly they're on the harvest field. You want to bring others to heaven with you. And that, in a nutshell, is, is what outreach is all about. Jesus called us to be fishers of men. Go out and catch men, he said. From now on, you will catch men. You'll be fishers of men. But somewhere along the line, the church can transition from fishers of men to keepers of the aquarium. It's the aquarium that we think about. It's the aquarium mentality. What about our aquarium? Rather than what about all of those people that we drive by on the way to the aquarium that should know our Savior, should know our Master, should know His saving knowledge, His grace. It's estimated that 66.9% of the people on planet Earth are not Christians. At least. Let's say at least 66.9%. I say that because uh, those who profess Christianity in any form at all, even if it's nominal Christianity, moderate Christianity, cultic Christianity, those who embrace some form of the Christian religion is about 33%. So out of that, how many are truly saved, uh, the numbers of unbelievers go up. At least 66.9% of people on earth don't know our Savior. It's been further estimated to get a visual of that If you took all of the unsaved people and lined them up side by side and asked them to form a line around planet Earth, that they would form a line that would encircle the globe 30 times. 30 times. And, get this, the line is growing 
20 miles every day. Tomorrow, 20 miles longer. The next day, another 20 miles. It's staggering. So it's incumbent upon us to take these words that we read here and the mandate of our Savior to go into all the world very seriously. The church isn't just about upreach, isn't just about inreach, but it should be about outreach. Now, we want to kind of show you on the screen a a logo. Could we do that? Could we pop that up? Because I'm going to need to see it so I can read it too. Uh, The logo is up there, but there we go. And uh, it looks like a big O with things in it. And I'm going to explain what they are. Let's go to the next slide. Okay, hold on. Uh, It's not that easy to read. Uh, The the Ocean Hills logo... um, Hold on. It's the near and the far vision that's going at this age. Uh, The Ocean Hills logo contains multiple elements that together symbolize the ministry and identity of Ocean Hills Church. Next slide. The logo is bordered by an oval which represents the letter O in Ocean Hills. Next slide. The triangular shapes within the oval represent the pages of Scripture. Can you see them? Like the Bible is turning. And take on the look of ocean waves which are found along the coastline upon which the church sits. The tri-shapes, you can make them out, the tri-shapes also give movement and dimension to the image representing the idea of a growing active organization that moves beyond its own borders. I like that. Moves beyond its own borders. Fishers of men, not keepers of the aquarium. Slide four. The threefold aspect of this logo represent the threefold philosophy of Ocean Hills Church, upreach, inreach, and outreach. And then finally, the Trajan Seraph font. I have no idea what that is, but the guy who did the logo wrote it down, so I'm going to read it. The Trajan Seraph font of this image represents stability and longevity. So we thought after going through this little um, vision casting and Uh, The staff has seen this for some time that you could, and you've seen it up on the slides, you could see what is all that about, that it represents not only the scriptures, but it represents going beyond our borders. Let's talk just a little bit about outreach. God himself is outreach-minded. If you would think back with me for a moment, even to the very beginning stories of the Bible, We see a God who has a desire to reach the entire world. That's what Jesus was all about. He sent his son on a mission as a missionary, so to speak, in a foreign country to save it. But even beyond that, back past the New Testament, we come to Abraham. And God said, Abraham, leave your comfort zone. Leave the land, the family, everything you're used to. Get up and go to a land I will show you. Now, what was the purpose for the mission? So that you and your family would be blessed? No, so that all the families of the earth would be blessed. All the families of the earth. God had this outreach mind from the beginning, and we see it instilled in Abraham. Jesus himself was outreach minded. He said, I have come to seek 
and to save that which was lost. Now go back to chapter 9, which we just read, and look at verse 36. When Jesus saw the multitudes, he was moved with compassion for them because they were wearied and scattered like sheep having no shepherd. It's an interesting word when it says he was moved with compassion. The original language has the word splankna, which literally means bowels or guts. Uh, If I was going to loosely translate it, and bear with me here, it's a loose translation. He was moved in his gut. It was a gut-wrenching experience when he saw what he saw. And the reason that the writers use that term splankna or intestines because they believed, the ancients believed, that the emotions were felt in the deepest pit of the stomach. Now, you remember what it's like when you hear some kind of news that is, is uh, either very painful or something that is a very moving piece of news. You feel it in the pit of your stomach. Sometimes the deepest emotion is there. So when Jesus saw this crowd, he was moved emotionally. And here's why. They were weary and they were scattered like sheep having no shepherd. The NASB, I believe, has something like distressed and downcast. And it moved Jesus. And then he said to his disciples, The harvest truly is plentiful, but the laborers are few. I think it's the New English Bible. It says, There is much grain, but very few to gather it in. Look at the grain. It's ready to be picked. It's everywhere around. But there's not many people who will go out and get it, gather it in. So he says, therefore, because that's true, pray. He doesn't say, first, therefore, strategize, form a committee, take up a collection. But first, pray. Therefore, pray that the Lord of the harvest will send out superintendents. No, it doesn't say that, does it? Laborers. Into his harvest. Now, um, I'm just going to kind of move your eyes down a little bit. I uh, am going to presume that between chapter 9, verse 38, and uh, chapter 10, verse 1, that they probably, at least some of them, obeyed Jesus and actually prayed the prayer Jesus told them to pray. Can't you just see maybe Peter and John, Andrew, saying, come on, you guys, let's do what he said. Let's just take a moment here and pray. And so let's just picture them for a moment. They they bow their head and and they're locked in their arms. And maybe Peter says, Lord, we just pray that you'll send out laborers into your harvest field. Just like Jesus said, it's ready to be picked. Okay, go down because after they're named, look at verse 5. These 12 Jesus sent out and commanded them saying... Do not go of the way of the Gentiles. Do not enter a city of the Samaritans, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And he gives them marching orders. I like this. He tells them to pray. They probably did. And he answers their prayer by sending them. Keep that in mind next time you pray. It's a pattern I've seen so often as people say, Lord, we pray for this country, send missionaries. As you continue to pray for that country, God touches your heart for that country. And you might be the next missionary who goes to that country. 
You pray for the people around Orange County and you see them walking down the streets like my wife and I did on the way here this evening. You start praying for them and the Lord just may say, pull over, talk to them, open your mouth. I'm going to answer your prayer. So it's the heart of the father. It was that way from the beginning when he motivated Abraham to leave. It's the very heart of Jesus. He uh, came into this world to seek and save that which is lost. And uh, something else, number three. Not only is the Father outreach-oriented, not only is Jesus the Son outreach-oriented, the Holy Spirit is. All three members of the Trinity have outreach on their minds, you might say. How do I know this? Because the entire book of Acts is the unfolding of not the acts of the apostles, but the acts of the Holy Spirit through the apostles. That's really the best title of the book. I don't like acts of the apostles because they were just catching the wind of the Spirit and they were available and open and God answered their prayers by the Holy Spirit in sending them. And so we open up the book of Acts and we see the Holy Spirit mentioned as He baptizes them, as He fills them, as He moves them, as He appoints them we see that the prophecy of Joel is fulfilled. I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Once again, the heart of God. Not just for the Jerusalemites, not just for the Jewish people, but all flesh. Just like all the families of the earth will be blessed in Abraham. And then we see the book of Acts unfold as the gospel goes, exactly as Jesus said In Acts chapter 1, verse 8, you'll take it into Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and then the uttermost parts of the earth. And the book of Acts, incidentally, follows that very outline. As it begins in Jerusalem, it moves out into the outskirts of Judea. That's sort of like the county, the province. Then it goes into territory that nobody really liked, nobody really wanted to go. Uh, That was uh, Samaria. And then... Paul the Apostle and his teams took it all over the world. Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the earth. That's the heart of God. That's the heart of the Holy Spirit in the book of Acts. So you see, it wasn't all about Jerusalem. That's where the church was in Jerusalem. But as you read the book of Acts, you get the picture. Oh, it's not just about Jerusalem. It's not just, let's have our kind of music in Jerusalem. Let's solve the parking problem in Jerusalem. Uh, What's the songbooks going to look like in Jerusalem? What God was trying to teach them is, yes, Jerusalem is great. I'm doing a work. But the work is to be not just here, but get your eyes and look outward upon all flesh. That's where God was going. So once again, God the Father is outreach-oriented. God the Son is outreach-oriented. God the Holy Spirit is outreach-oriented. And according to Jesus In this mandate, his followers are to be outreach-oriented. If we're really following Jesus, he's going somewhere. He's not just twiddling his thumbs in church every week. He's on the move. And his followers ought to be on the move as well. Because the Great Commission, we all know it well, in uh, Mark's Gospel, chapter 16, verse 15, he said, go, go. Go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. Everyone. So we can't walk down the street and say, well, they're probably not predestined to be saved, so I'm not going to tell them anything. 
We don't have that right. Our mandate is to tell everyone the gospel message. Go, Jesus said. Or I love King James, go ye. You know what the church's attitude has been historically, at least in this country in the last century? Come ye. Come ye to the church. That's why we're here, for you to just come to us. He told us to go to them. The mentality isn't a come ye, it's a us, go ye attitude. And that's the heart of what Jesus told them to do here. After Jesus rose from the dead, I I love the scene, the... uh, The disciples are in the upper room and they're scared to death. The doors are locked. They're afraid of the Jews. They're going to be arrested next, they think. While they're there, gathered together, huddled together, Jesus just shows up, just appears, just is there. And they're all afraid. Like, how'd he do that? The doors are locked. He didn't climb through the window. He just appeared. To quell their fears, Jesus said, peace to you. And then he said, now this is immediately after the resurrection. As my father has sent me, so send I you. He wanted them fresh out of the tomb to hear the first mandate from his lips. As the father has sent me, my mission's completed. I'm sending you. Folks, we've got to catch that. We got to catch that because, yeah, the line's growing 20 miles longer every day. But do you know even something more striking than that? Did you know that 95% of all Christians have never led anyone to faith in Christ? So the statistic goes that I have been reading. 95% have never personally led a person to Christ. Now, why is that? Well, The poll that I read said some people said they were discouraged in their first attempts to share the gospel. It didn't go very well. Others were scared because people asked them questions they couldn't answer about the Christian faith. They felt intimidated. And so they didn't want to share the gospel because what if I get caught and I can't answer their questions? You know how I learned to do evangelism? It really wasn't sophisticated. It wasn't in any Bible school. I was just sort of a saved wannabe hippie. I wasn't even a hippie. I just wanted to be one. And uh, it was here in Southern California when the communes were going on. I just thought it was cool. And so they piled as many of us as they could in a Volkswagen bus. I mean, it would set the Guinness record. We were crammed in this bus. And they took us out to a strip mall. And they opened the door and said, you got a couple hours, go witness. I said, what is that? What is this witness? He said, go tell somebody that God loves them and lead them to Christ. I said, I don't know how to do that. He said, you'll get the hang of it. And I did. And you know how I got the hang of it? I got intimidated. First of all, I was scared just to walk up to someone and talk to them about God. They're not into God. So I started talking to them. And the first night, when I finally had boldness to share, somebody asked me a question. And it was something about, well, how do you know there even is a God given all of the evidences that we see around us in the universe for the evolutionary process? And I said, oh. I couldn't answer his question. 
But I thought quickly. I said, tell you what, are you going to be around here next week at this time? It was out in front of a Shakey's Pizza Parlor. I'll find the answer out and I'll meet you here next week. I did come. He didn't. But in the meantime, I went and found the answer out. So that if anybody asked me an evolutionary question, I was ready, at least a little bit. And I went out that night and I was bolder. And I shared with another person that I met. And I was waiting for him to ask me or her to ask me the question about evolution. They didn't. They asked me another question I couldn't answer. Now, I think you get the idea. Eventually, what happened is I learned how to answer their questions. So that instead of being intimidated, I was well-equipped and I was heathen hunting at that moment. I wanted to find them. I wanted to engage them. I wanted to talk to them. That's how you learn. You do it. But 95% have admitted they have not led a person to faith in Christ. Go into all the world. Simple. It's simple as a statement. At our fellowship back in Albuquerque, we constructed this courtyard. We've constructed another one since, but as you would leave the building, at least in the old section, we, uh, you come out to a courtyard and there's this big limestone wall with gates you, you go through. And I wanted to make sure that a message was inscribed on the inside of those outside retaining walls as you would walk out and go to your car. There'd, there'd be some kind of a sign. Not a cheesy sign, not one with scotch tape that you read, but I mean an indelible sign. And I wanted to make sure that the only name that was indelibly inscribed at that institution would be the Lord Jesus Christ, not my name. So I put Mark's quotation, chapter 16, verse 15, go into all the world, Jesus Christ. So the mentality is I'm leaving church, I'm leaving the salt shaker, I'm going out into the world... And that's the message. Go into all the world. In other words, now you're leaving church. And when you leave church, you're entering your mission field, which is your Jerusalem, your Judea, your Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the earth. That's the mandate. I've shared with you before that famous quote by Arthur Pink, the church that does not evangelize will fossilize. Now think about that for a moment. It's a cute saying, but it means something very important. A church that does not evangelize will fossilize. I've watched churches fossilize. I watched them look back over their history of 200 years or 100 years or 75 years or 50 years, but they're not bringing any people in. They're keeping the aquarium. They're not fishing for men and women. It will fossilize and to look at our institution. You know, when God looks down from heaven at the church, do you think he cares about the institution? Do you think he cares about the building? Not at all. He cares about the business, not the building. The family business, which is the gospel. I want to tell you about a book that I have. It's a, it's a little book, and I found it in a bookstore, and I'll tell you why I bought it. I was walking past and I saw the title and the title yelled to me, you must buy me. It didn't say that, but it, I'll tell you the title in a minute. It just grabbed me. 
The name of the book, it's by Hollis Green, is called Why Churches Die. Isn't that a great title? Why Churches Die. Well, I was a pastor. I wanted to know why churches die. So I bought the book, and it's a very simple book. It's not all that comprehensive. It's not a treatise on theology and church history. It's just very simple. And he gave several reasons. Let me just give you a couple of them. The first two reasons. Reason number one, he says, why churches die. Converts don't become disciples. They become converts. They attend something. They're there. But they're not truly disciples in the sense of finding out the pleasure of the Father and being committed to do it. So churches die when converts don't become disciples. Closely following that, Hollis Green writes, reason number two, disciples don't become apostles. What he means by that is they're into Bible study, they're gathering in groups, they're reading, they're being discipled by each other, but they're not apostolic in the sense of going outside of the borders, as in the logo, and reaching out and being sent out with a task. Churches die when converts don't become disciples and when disciples don't become apostles. Okay, we're talking about outreach. Let's get more practical now. We've gone through the scripture. We've looked at it. We've cast out a few scriptures and ideas. Let me give you a few concrete ways it takes place. Outreach takes place, number one, let's call it event evangelism. Event evangelism. That's typically what we think of. When you think of an evangelist, you don't think of yourself. You think of Dr. Billy Graham. He's the evangelist. And you're right. He's a great evangelist. He's a wonderful man. He has preached the gospel to more people than anyone else in human history. That's amazing. Or we think of the Harvest Crusades. And what Greg has done every year here in Orange County for the last several years, I was there at his first one. And those are great ways, by the way, for churches to get involved. We're getting involved in those events. And I'll tell you why it's good to get involved. It's good to get involved because, first of all, churches learn to cooperate together in a single event, which is a feat in and of itself. And it really works wonderfully. When we did, uh, and we did a crusade, about one crusade a year we hosted in Albuquerque. Our church sort of just spawned that as something we will do every year, whether it was Raul Reese or Greg or Franklin or Billy. And uh, you bring other churches on board, you learn who those churches are, you work together toward a common goal, and it does something else. It primes the pump in that church, in those churches for evangelism. It primes the pump. It gets people excited. They see their friends that they've prayed for, that they've brought to that event, come to Christ. And they go, I'm going to keep doing this now. I'm not going to just do this once every blue moon. I'm going to do this all the time. So it primes the pump. That's event evangelism. And then number two, there's personal evangelism. And uh, hopefully event evangelism, like we said, primes the pump and gets you into a lifestyle where you see an unbeliever and you just got to talk to him about God, about Jesus, about his love for them. And let him fire away those hard questions and you learn how to answer them and you watch what happens. So it becomes a lifestyle where, this is what I would call personal evangelism, you learn to view people the way God views people. You learn to view people the way God views people. We might go through a mall and say, 
Look at all these beautiful people. Look at all these tanned people. Look at all these affluent people. The eyes of Jesus sees weary, scattered, broken, distressed, unsaved people. The person sitting next to us in the airplane, well, I like his watch. Is he even going to heaven? Is he on the way to hell? That's significant personal evangelism. When personal evangelism becomes a way of life, life's pretty adventurous. And all the events that any church would do or community would do, they're second nature because people are trained to do it. Here's an interesting statistic, and I got this, by the way, from Evangelism Explosion. It was shared uh, uh, to me by Hank Canegraaff, who used to be heavily involved in that. He said, uh, or they said, if you were able to fill a stadium full of people, a 50,000-seat stadium, could you picture it? Let's say next door on this big field is a stadium, and we could fill it full of 50,000 people every night. Every night we could pull it off so that that 50,000-seat stadium would be full every night of every week of every month of every year for 35 straight years. And if every night a 1,000 new people got saved, came to Christ, can you imagine that? You'd say, we've won. (laughs) The world is saved. No. At the end of 35 years, because of the exponential growth of population worldwide, we would be, in percentage, further behind the task of world evangelism than the day we began. You go, well, Skip, uh, that doesn't really motivate me. When you put it in those terms, it just makes me feel like, why bother? But the good news is, if there were no Christians on earth, and you were the only one, and you prayed, Dear Lord... May it be your will that in the next 12 months I'll lead one single person to faith in Christ. If God answered your prayer after one year, how many Christians would there be on earth? Two. If each of you prayed the same prayer in the third year, how many Christians would there be? Four. And if you kept praying, there'd be eight. And there'd be 16 and 32 and 64. And the exponential growth, if you extrapolate that equation over 35 years, you'll be fighting for heathens to witness to. There won't be any or few at all left because of personal evangelism. So event evangelism, then there's personal evangelism. Oh, by the way, on this thing of event evangelism, there's an idea we're toying with, and uh, we'll just pray that we can flesh it out. We have a truck. Uh, The radio stations that I'm a part of back in New Mexico, we have this uh, big semi is it 18 wheeler? Is that what there? There's 18 wheels. I never really counted them, but they're 18 wheels. We have this truck that you push a few buttons and the thing doubles in size, opens up, and becomes a light stage and a sound stage with its own PA system, monitor system, light system, and generator system. So you can go in the middle of anywhere and have an event. It's a portable light sound stage. So we thought, wouldn't it be cool to get permits and to do? events, great music, and take it to different beaches, different parts of the county, and just share the gospel. Get the right permits and just take the gospel to the streets. You could do skateboarding events, bicycle events, musical events. 
and give a gospel message and just watch what the Lord would do. That'd be a fun event to do as a group of churches, so pray for that. It's still a big undertaking to get the truck out here and get it operating and, and get the team together, but uh, we'll, we'll give you more, um, more uh, stuff on that as we get that going. Event evangelism, personal evangelism. Here's a third. I'll just touch on it. Cross-cultural evangelism. That's missions. Missions is a sign of a mature church. That's also the heart of God. You know, if you think about it, the ultimate cross-cultural evangelism is Jesus. I, I don't know if you've ever traveled to a third world country, but when I first went to India, it was so different. It smelled different. It tasted different. It sounded different. It was a culture shock. Can you imagine the culture shock of leaving heaven and coming to the Middle East and living there for three and a, for 33 years? being God and coming to earth as a man. The ultimate cross-cultural experience is when Jesus emptied himself out, the kenosis, Philippians chapter 2, and became a man and died on the cross. But as I said, a mark of a mature church is that we care about Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the earth. Let me add something to that, though. With any missions activity, there should be a prayerful mission strategy. Because the world's pretty big. And you know what the strategy of most churches in missions is? Ready, fire, aim. Not ready, aim, fire. It's ready, fire, aim. Now, ready, aim, fire is where you uh, prayerfully denote a target and you say, I'm going to hit that target. Ready, fire, aim is where you just shoot out the arrows and then you walk up to wherever they hit and you draw bullseye around them. That's what most churches do. They're just happy to send anybody out anywhere they feel led to go rather than saying, what areas of the, lo- of the world does the Lord want us to concentrate on perhaps and spend years cultivating and watching fruit come out of it? So it's not just, yeah, we sent a team here and a team there, but watch what we're, we're building. Churches schools, orphanages. We're doing evangelism over the years and really seeing something happen. Fourth is, I'm going to call it media evangelism. We live in a media age. The world is media savvy. Um, I mean, radio and television and uh, print publishing and even a live streaming on the Internet. All of these can have a tremendous effect. I've been committed to it for 20 years. Uh, we have the Connection Radio broadcast in, in, uh, on about 450 stations across America. We have it in uh, Mexico. We have it in Africa. We have it in Europe, England. Um, we have it down in uh, New Zealand and Australia. And, and here's what I have noticed. The media can take a person off guard... You see, it's different than sitting in a church service and watching and listening with people around you and you have to make a decision or not make a decision. You might feel good or bad about that. You can catch them off guard. They might be in their car or in a hospital room or at home and they're listening and nobody's around them, so they listen differently. And, you know, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word. Last night I was in Colorado Springs. I taught at a regional Calvary Chapel pastor's conference in Colorado Springs. And I was talking to people after uh, my session, and one man came up to me. He'd been waiting. I could see him. He was waiting. And he came up, and he had tears in his eyes, and he's in the ministry. And uh, 
I said, brother, how are you? He said, I just want to thank you. It was several years ago that I listened to your radio broadcast and I came to faith in Christ in my car. Listening to it, I just pulled over and gave my life to Christ. That's how it all began. Now I'm in the ministry. A few years ago, I received a letter from a pastor in Idaho, Pocatello, Idaho, who had a guy come to his church and now he's in the leadership of his church who listened to the Connection radio broadcast. And he was one of the 72 Mormon elders. And he listened and he listened day after day after day and he gave his life to Christ. And now he's serving in leadership in this church in Pocatello. And I thought, there's real value in catching people off guard. They listen differently. They're not going to be listening to it in their church like that. The Mormons aren't going to hear that message in their temple. But he on the radio could listen to it and over time gave his life to Christ. So there's powerful tools to be harnessed uh, when it comes to the media. Um, I want to close with a scripture and then we're going to pray. All of this talk about upreach, inreach, outreach, it looks good on paper. And you might even say, well, you know, I don't know if we're really ready for outreach yet, Skip. I mean, I think we really need to concentrate just one by one. Let's just work on upreach first. And then maybe we'll work on inreach. And then we'll put outreach to a later time. Do them all at the same time. A three-pronged approach, a three-pronged attack. Why? I believe we don't have much time left. I truly believe the Lord is coming soon. I'm excited about that, but it should also burden us. Second Corinthians 6, now is the accepted time. Now is the day of salvation. The Bible always speaks about today, about now, not about later, but now. So we want to jump right in because the time is late. A little boy loved to uh, go to grandma's house and he play with his toys out in the open on the floor in front of the grandfather clock. And uh, he would always, uh, he'd love to hear the thing chime. And, and the, the hands were almost nearing 12 noon. And he'd put his toys down, and when it would strike 12, he'd count them. Well, on this day, there was some malfunction in the clock's mechanism, and it struck 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, 15, 16. And it stopped. The little boy watched big saucer eyes, ran into the kitchen with grandma and said, Grandma, it's later than it's ever been before. (laughs) Folks, it's later than it's ever been before. You say, oh, I heard that years ago. People said, Jesus is coming back 20 years ago. Then it's 20 years later. It's that much sooner that the Lord is going to return. Now is the time. Upreach, inreach, outreach. So we're going to break up in groups. And all of this stuff that we've thrown in this vision casting is on the table so that in uh, weeks and months to come, we'll give opportunities for all of these things, for all of us to get plugged in and watch what the Lord does. But once again, next week, communion, the Lord's Supper, 7 o'clock, and then the week after, how to study your Bible and enjoy it. Now let's just break up in groups like we did the last few weeks and let's really soak it in. 
Let's pray that the Lord of the harvest will send out laborers into the harvest. And when you pray, don't be afraid to say, and Lord, you can use me to do it too. Send me. Let's break up in prayer and then we'll, we'll close corporately and we'll sing.